Tonight we're looking at chapter 3 of Knowing God, and the title of this chapter is Knowing and Being Known. Knowing and Being Known. And he uh, talks about what it is to know God in a personal, relational way, and then just talks about what it is to be in a relationship with God and uh, and concludes with just the marvel that that is, uh, that we would be known by the creator of the universe and that he would set his love upon us. And so he begins with, uh, at the, in the introduction to the chapter, just talking about uh, what is our life for? What are, what are we made for? And he says, we're made to know God. Uh, what should be our aim in life? Our, our purpose in life should be to know God. The first question in the Westminster Catechism is, what is the chief end of man? The chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. That involves knowledge of God, uh, to know him and to love him, to enjoy him, to bring him honor. He asks, what is the eternal life that Jesus gives? John 17, 3 says, now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So we might think of that one way as knowing God is the means to salvation and eternal life. But I think there's more to it than that, that knowing God is not only the means to eternal life, it's what eternal life is all going to be about, is knowing God and knowing Jesus Christ. He says, what is the best thing in life, bringing more joy, delight, and contentment than anything else? Uh, it is to know God. Jeremiah 9.23, this is what the Lord says. Let not the wise boast of their wisdom or the strong boast of their strength or the rich boast of their riches, but let the one who boasts boast about this, that they have the understanding to know me, that I am the Lord who exercises kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth. For in these I delight, declares the Lord. What is our boast in life? What is our joy? What is our ultimate aim? And he talks about in the chapter how just in the world, we, we strive for purpose. We strive for meaning. We strive for fulfillment. And we look for it in all the wrong places. And so then it's no surprise that we don't end up filled, satisfied, or joyful because the world looks for it in all the wrong places. We look for it in money or in fame in success, in just feeling good, uh, pleasure, whatever it is. And none of those things ultimately satisfy. They all let us down. But knowing God is that which can give our life full meaning and significance. He says, what of all the states God ever sees man in gives God most pleasure? What is it that God delights in? And Hosea 6.6 6 says, For I desire mercy and not sacrifice, and the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. In other words, God is not interested in the religious motions, rituals, doing things, because that's what's expected of us to do. But what he wants from us is the desire to know him, to love him, to walk in his ways. He says in the beginning of the chapter, Once you become aware that the main business that you are here for is to know God, 
most of life's problems fall into place of their own accord. Not that there aren't problems, and not that there aren't times in life that are difficult, but when we orient our lives around knowing God, and we see that as what we're here for, all of those difficulties have meaning. They have a purpose in our lives. He says, what makes life worthwhile is having a big enough objective, something which catches our imagination and lays hold of our allegiance. And this the Christian has in a way that no other person has. For what higher, more exalted, and more compelling goal can there be than to know God? So we need something higher. We need something transcendent. We need something beyond what this world can provide. And he says, as Christians, we have that in knowing God and his Savior, Jesus Christ, and his Spirit. So what does it mean then to know God? Uh, Knowing God is more complex than knowing another person. And in this section of the chapter, he talks about different ways that knowledge works. And we know things differently depending on the type of thing that that is. And he talks about different levels of knowledge. So you might have abstract things that you can learn academically, like language or philosophy. But then you have concrete things, but inanimate, not not living. And so you might investigate them. You feel them, you hold them, you can touch them. You can get to know that thing through just interacting with it. But it's inanimate. There's only so much to it. Uh, Then you move up higher on the chain of knowledge to something that is alive. And when something is alive, like an animal, there, you can get to know that animal, but it takes longer to get to know an animal than, say, a rock. Because that animal has characteristics and it acts differently under different situations. And different stimuli can affect that animal. And so there's the, the know, knowing that animal is more complex. Well, then you go up even higher than that your knowledge of a a sentient being, a a person made in the image of God. Uh, We are complex beings, rational, thinking, complex beings. To get to know a person is much more challenging than to get to know anything else in creation. And we can even have different levels of knowledge of people, can't we? So we can have an acquaintance level knowledge. We can have a casual friendship knowledge. We can have a good friendship knowledge the knowledge of a spouse. So we have different levels of knowledge, even of people. And then within that, he talks about how getting to know a person changes. It's different if we're interacting with someone who's an authority, uh, so maybe a, a dignitary or somebody like that. And uh, with a person like that, the, the person who is an authority, the person who is of higher nobility, that person often will take the initiative in opening up themselves to being known. And he says, in a sense, it's, it's a finite illustration, but that's similar to how it is with us and God, in that God is the higher being. He is infinitely higher than even a human person. And it is upon God to reveal himself and to open up himself to us. And as he reveals himself to us, we get to know him and understand him. He says, what happens is that the almighty creator, the Lord of hosts, the great God before whom the nations are as a drop in a bucket, 
comes to you and begins to talk to you through the words and truths of Holy Scripture. So the infinite almighty God speaks. He reveals. And that in itself is a merciful thing. It's a gracious thing that God would speak and reveal himself to his creatures. And so knowing God involves these things, at least these things. Listening to God's word and receiving it as the Holy Spirit interprets it in application to oneself. So he talks about how, how do we know God? Do we, do we look for visions? Do we look for ecstatic experiences? Do we look for angels showing up? How is it that we can come to know God? The primary way that God has given to us to know him is through the words that he has spoken. And those words that he has spoken are already written down. They're recorded for us in the pages of Holy Scripture. It cannot be replaced. Irreplaceable method of coming to know God is the Scriptures. Which there's uh, an inference that we can draw from that. If we're not in the Scriptures, then our knowledge of God will suffer. We will not grow in our knowledge of God as we should if we're not in Scripture. Because that's the primary way that he's given to reveal himself to us. Another way that we can come to know God is noting God's nature and character as his word and works reveal it. So we can come to see and know who God is through his word that he has spoken, but there is still knowledge of God in what God does, right? And one of the primary things that we can see and observe in what God does is in the natural world. Uh, the psalmist in Psalm 19 says, the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. So we can look at the natural world and we can get to know God in at least certain aspects of God's nature and being and power and wisdom through what he's made and also through what he has spoken. I would add also that not only in creation, but I would say also providence is one of God's works that reveals his nature and his character. And providence is basically anything that God oversees that happens in the world, isn't it? So uh, just think the way that God orders our lives, the way that God has graciously blessed us, the way that God weaves trials and blessings in our lives. All of these things, all of his works can reveal aspects of his nature and his character. Accepting his invitations and doing what he commands. So reading God's word, understanding it in the way that the Holy Spirit reveals it to us, knowing who God is in his nature and his character, but we, we can't really come to know God in a personal way if we are not positively inclined toward God. And so there, there is an openness of heart, a willingness to receive, a, a, a willingness to, to follow and obey. And, and that positive response to God's words draws us deeper and draws us closer to him. Recognizing and rejoicing in the love that he has shown in thus approaching you and drawing you into his divine fellowship. God makes the initial move, doesn't he? God makes the initial move. God draws us in 
as we respond to that loving grace of God, then we are drawn deeper into a knowledge of who God is. So just recognizing, rejoicing in his grace that draws us into fellowship with him. Knowing Jesus. One, one really important way for us to, to know God, to know him better, is through Jesus Christ. Because Jesus is the ultimate revelation of God, isn't he? Jesus is the perfect revelation of God. John 1.1 1, 1 says that in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. And that Word became flesh and lived among us. And we saw, we beheld His glory. John 1.18 says no one's ever seen God, but the one and only Son, the only begotten of the Father. He has revealed Him. He has declared Him. Hebrews 1 says that Jesus is the express image of the person of the Godhead, the, the radiance of his being. And so knowing, we know God through knowing Jesus. As Jesus said to Philip, Philip, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And so we can come to know God through knowing Jesus. And he talks about how Jesus was known by his disciples. And, and clearly they had a unique opportunity, didn't they? In that here is Jesus in the flesh, in body, God, man, here among his people. And those 12 men interacted with Jesus on a day-in, day-out basis for three, roughly three years. And of them, Peter, James, and John probably got to know him even better than the 12, the inner circle of Jesus' disciples. But those people who saw Jesus, who interacted with him, they, they had a relationship with Jesus as we have with one another, as a person to a person. He was a real man in the flesh in front of them. And so they had the opportunity to see Jesus' miracles, to hear his teachings, to hear his words from his own mouth. So they, on one hand, you might say, well, they had such an advantage, Right? What an advantage to, to have been there with Jesus and to see him and to interact with him. And no doubt I could say, yes, absolutely. What an incredible experience that would have been. But do you remember what Jesus said to Thomas? He said, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. We are numbered among that company, aren't we? Of those who have not seen Jesus, but yet we believed. And... Not only that, but since Jesus has risen and ascended to heaven, he has sent from the Father a precious gift to us, hasn't he? The indwelling, the abiding Holy Spirit. He says, if I don't go away, he, the comforter, the advocate, he will not come to you. So Jesus saw it as a gift to his disciples to go to heaven so that they could receive the gift of the Holy Spirit to be with them and in them. And so we can still know Jesus differently than the original disciples, but we can still know him. And we can still be, he can still be known by us now as Christians. There are differences. We know him now spiritually. Not, he's not with us bodily in the flesh, but we can know him spiritually. And in, a, in another way, we have an advantage over the disciples because now we have the full New Testament picture of who Jesus is. You read the Gospels, 
and you see that the disciples, a lot of times, they seem clueless, don't they? They seem like, how, how, what's going on? How does this fit together? Jesus would say something like, you know, I'm going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to be uh, beaten, scourged, and then handed over and, and crucified. And they're, and they're thinking, what, what are you talking about? We don't understand. And so the whole, whole time leading up to Jesus' death and resurrection, it was almost like there was a veil over the disciples' eyes. They were learning, experiencing, growing, and understanding of who this Messiah is. But we now have the advantage of the post-resurrection revelation of Jesus Christ, of not only his words, but also the words of the apostles, of Peter and Paul and James and John, and, and this full picture now of who Jesus the Christ is. So he may not be with us bodily, but we have certain advantages even over the disciples who lived during that time because their minds still had not yet caught up with the full understanding of what Jesus was there to accomplish. Uh, Jesus continues to speak to us through his word. We, not, we may not be able to hear his audible voice like Peter, James, and John did, but we still have his words, don't we? We still have his words. He still continues to speak, not only in just the things that he said himself in quotes in the Gospels, but even then through his apostles whom he authorized to speak on his behalf. We have his words. And so we still have a relationship with Jesus of personal discipleship, of getting to know him, of getting to know his ways, of learning of his truths and his commands. And so we still relate to Jesus. And that is a, a means, a door, if you will, of relating to God the Father. In this section of the chapter, he says, Jesus' voice is heard. When Jesus' claim is acknowledged, his promise trusted, and his call answered. From then on, Jesus is known as shepherd, and those who trust him he knows as his own sheep. This is in the context of him quoting from John chapter 10. I know my sheep, I call them by name, and they follow me, and I give unto them eternal life. So those who hear Jesus in that sense of a loving, effectual call, they are known by him as his sheep, and they know him. So what does it mean then to know God? He says it's a personal matter. It is a matter of personal dealing, meaning that we have to be personally engaged, not in an academic sense, but in a relational sense, in a sense of that involves our whole person of emotion and intellect and will, all of, all of the aspects of our being. So it's, it's a completely personal dealing with God, not just knowing facts, knowing truths, not just doing religious duties or rituals, but it is engaging the whole person with God and Christ and his spirit. And I think that's essentially what Paul meant in Romans 12, too, when he says, now our spiritual act of worship is to give God our bodies as a living sacrifice. Not just our physical bodies, but I think by that he meant our whole selves. All of us, every aspect of our being, to give to God daily a living sacrifice every day, every moment of our lives. It's a matter of personal dealing. 
he says it's a matter of personal involvement. And by that is a subtle distinction, meaning that there is a level of commitment. There's a level of loyalty, of joining together with Jesus, that it has to move beyond a superficial knowledge. And he uses the illustration of even our personal dealings with with others, that we have different levels of relationships, don't we, in in among human people. We some people we know and we can recognize them, we'll shake their hand, you know, we can call their name. But there's really no sense of obligation, no sense of, of strong tie there. But with a friend, you know, there is more of a sense of loyalty. There's more of a sense of if my person if my friend is in trouble, I need to help. You know, there's a sense of obligation there. Uh, of um, a sense of being willing to listen, of being willing to help. Even more so when you talk about being a spouse, a life partner, a life a lifelong uh, joined together friendship and loyalty in marriage, that there is a deeper responsibility of commitment to know and listen and engage. And that's what he means here in this personal involvement with God, that not only should it involve every aspect of our being, but it should involve a level of commitment and loyalty and and getting to know God as we would want to know the closest personal relationship in our earthly life. He says knowing God is a matter of grace, meaning that initially that the only way that we can know God is because he has chosen to know us. So knowing God is really a response to being known by God. It is God in sovereign love, in sovereign grace, setting his affection on people and lovingly drawing them to himself in in speaking to them, not only in the word, but also speaking to them by his spirit to draw them and to awaken them and to open up their eyes and ears and minds to to know God. As it says in Scripture, we love Him. Why? Because He first loved us. So we can know God because we've been known by God. It is a matter of grace. He says, we do not make friends with God. God makes friends with us. Bringing us to know Him by making his love known to us. God initiates the friendship. He initiates the act of love. And then he concludes with that idea then, that God, out of grace, knows us, so that then we, can, we are known by God. He says, what matters supremely, therefore, is not in the last analysis the fact that I know God, but the larger fact which underlies it, the fact that he knows me. That is the foundation of it all. And that, that thought is what keeps this lifelong pursuit of knowing God. It keeps it from becoming a legalistic, self-righteous enterprise. Because we know that there would be absolutely no possibility of knowing God without him knowing us. And so then it it doesn't become a a pursuit of God 
for the sake of earning anything or the sake of achieving anything or the sake of competing with anyone or comparing ourselves to anyone. The, the whole purpose in pursuing God is because he first pursued us. That needs to be the foundation for our pursuit of God. And kind of the thought that he ends with is that we need to have this perspective of grace so that that can undergird our, our drive, our pursuit of knowing God.